This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to talk about the history of uh, disease, epidemic, and public health responses uh, in democracies uh, around the world. Uh, There's a long history, in fact, of uh, democracies struggling, struggling to address uh, medical challenges and struggling to formulate public policy around these challenges in a way that's effective and also democratic. Uh, And this, of course, is relevant for today as we think about concerns regarding the coronavirus and other public health issues in our society. We are fortunate to have with us uh, a good friend and distinguished scholar, uh, Christopher Rose. Hi, Chris. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? I'm great. It's great to have you here. Uh, Chris is a distinguished graduate from the University of Texas PhD program. He finished his dissertation just last year. I did. It's amazing. It feels good, doesn't it? It does. It does. Chris is also a teaching assistant. He taught uh, with me in our class on U.S. history. Some of you listening might might remember having him as a TA. Uh, Chris is a scholar of the 19th and 20th century Middle East, but he's really a scholar of world history. He teaches world history in a very broad sense uh, with expertise in the Middle East. His uh, new book that he's working on now that grows out of his dissertation is called On the Home Front, Food, Medicine, and Disease in World War I. He's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Historical Studies and does a lot of his own podcasting, in fact, and he has a great website. If you just Google Christopher Rose, you can see his his website with his own podcast, articles he's written, uh, even a guidebook on being a graduate student. Really, really cool stuff. There. I tried to do a brain dump of everything I wish I'd known when I started. There you go. There yeah. you go. So people won't make the same mistakes you made. Uh, exactly. Learn from my mistakes, people. <laughs> Before we enter our discussion about uh, disease, uh, public policy, and democracy, we have, of course, our scene-setting fo- poem from Mr. Zachary Siri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? With an unspoken doubt. With an unspoken doubt. Okay, well, let's <clears throat> speak of your unspoken doubt. It is comforting sometimes on Wednesday mornings to feel time slow to interminable seconds on the black clock, comforting now to watch the dust settle on the rough tile floor. For we are now beginning to become aware of a new decade hurtling at viral speed as novel coronas mix with the new crowns of viral deception. And it is cynical to say that pandemics are the future final Armageddon, somewhat absurd to blame nation-states for viruses that originate in snakes or bat soup in a wildlife market in one of our endless urban passages, sicknesses that cross borders overnight and sleep hidden in the mists of gloomy mornings at quarantined Air Force bases in Southern California. But still, we give them all names like ancient Greeks trying to understand the stars, and we draw their shapes under electron microscopes like toddlers trying to learn the fuzzy outlines of the alphabet. The image of a cruise ship docked off Yokohama, the infested prison that was once a floating hotel, and the invisible traces that are always green to us and slimy like a cartoon, those silent specks that flicker up and down the forward wooden decks like a premonition. Most of all, though, It is the joking uncertainty with which we all look to the established halls of medicine, the wariness with the ability of thousands of doctors to prevent the rogue cells of snake slime in some Chinese market, and the way we stare at the blank, semi-purple windows of the state health departments with an unspoken doubt. Hmm. Unspoken doubt about what, Zachary? 
Well, I think what my poem is really about is uh, how uh, quick we are to um, to freak out about uh, viruses like the coronavirus and and how scary these uh, epidemics can be. Uh, and how they, uh, uh, unlike many other things, inspire a lot of mistrust in the institutions that are supposed to protect us. Right, and sometimes counterproductive responses, yeah. right? So, so Chris, this is a perfect spot to, to turn to you. Uh, your your focus of research in particular is, is on uh, a major uh, virus outbreak in uh, early, the early 20th century at the end of World War I. Tell us about that. Right. So uh, it's commonly known as the Spanish influenza. Uh, Interestingly, it's not because it came from Spain. We'll talk about that a a bit later on, but it was a mutated form of the H1N1 virus, Hmm. Uh, the same virus that came back about 10 years ago uh, and became known as the swine flu. Right. But it was an unusually long-lived epidemic. Uh, It lasted for over two years, went around the world in three waves. It was found above the Arctic Circle. It was found on Pacific islands. It literally touched every part of the world, with the exception of a small island in the Pacific that was able to blockade its ports and and prevent. So this is the United States, Japan, Europe, and Egypt, of course, that you've studied closely. Which is is the, the, the case study I'm most familiar with. But they were all overwhelmed by the unusual uh, mortality rate of this virus. The mortality rate basically means the number of cases that end in fatality. Also, the uh, the fact that the disease uh, carried off the strongest population, what it did was uh, it, it triggered an immunoresponse. And so people who were un- young and fit, right. you know, the 10 to 20 demographic, uh, were actually, tr- their bodies were triggered into an over-response, and that was ultimately what killed them. Wow. Wow, so the response to the virus is actually more deadly than the virus itself. Correct, in correct. Wow. I mean, it was a physiological response, and basically your lungs filled up with fluid and you drowned. Wow, wow. And uh, more people, as, as I understand it, we were talking about this before, more people died from the virus than from World War One, and about the same number as died in World War Two. in fact. Right. right? Uh, the CDC recently uh, published a, an updated estimate of about 50 million dead. My gosh. 500 million infected worldwide. One in 10 people died. Wow. The effect was just devastating. Hmm. And and how did societies respond? I mean, that's really what we want to talk about. We're not here as medical doctors. That's an interesting discussion, too. But from the perspective of historians and, and people who care about public policy, what was the response? What's really fascinating looking at it in a historical perspective is how the more things change, the more they stay the same. So uh, when there is a, a, an outbreak of something like this, there, there's basically three a- approaches. So first is what we call risk mitigation. So this is where, for example, uh, sometimes quarantines are used. They're not terribly effective unless you can really be sure where the de- disease originated. But also things like, you know, reminding people to wash their hands, mm-hmm. to cover their mouths and faces while they, you know, if, if they cough or sneeze, to stay home from work if they're sick, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in order to basically try to slow down the spread of the virus through any means necessary. The second is the treatment of the sick, which especially at the beginning of the 20th century, people didn't go to hospital hmm. if they were not feeling well. It just, you know... People generally preferred to be treated at home, and hospitals weren't that pleasant of an environment. So, you know, I mean, you went to hospital if you needed to have surgery, but, you know, for the sniffles, you stayed home. Mm -hmm. This was actually one of the big pushes, especially in places like the U.S. and Europe, to introduce the hospital as a place of 
care that you went to seek for something that didn't involve bleeding or you know something cut off or whatnot you know but but mm -hmm. um the idea that that the sick had to be quarantined in order to prevent the the, the spread of the virus right. and treated by medical professionals and treated by medical professionals and then the third is the, is the development of a vaccine right. the problem being with uh, some of these uh, shorter-lived outbreaks that by the time you can develop a vaccine, the danger has mostly passed. I know on Grey's Anatomy, you know, when, the, when, when a new virus comes to the hospital, you know, by lunchtime they have a working virus and then they can go back to flirting over surgery. But that's not how it works right. in real life. Right, right. And, and so how effective were these measures in 1918? They were about as effective as, they, as, as any measures really could be. The, the disease was unusually virulent. And the problem is that when you have a disease that has an incubation period of, of a few days, you can't control where it goes. So, you know, people didn't know they were affected because they didn't feel sick yet. And, it, you know, just one or two days will will allow the disease to transmit quickly. So, again, most of it was playing catch-up. And a lot of it, and again, the more things change, the more they stay the same, is what we in the TSA age refer to as security theater, right. where uh, measures are being taken primarily because there is a public demand for the government to, quote-unquote, do something whether it actually has an effect or not. So there are sometimes, you know, huge measures taken, you know, billboards and, you know, we're going to blockade and people are wearing masks in public. Will they actually do anything? It makes people feel better. But, you know, can you be said that it has a real impact on, on how fast viruses spread? Eh, I think that's debatable. Well, and one of our students has a question related directly to this. Uh, Kelly Housley uh, wants to ask about xenophobia and the ways in which often people feel better because they're targeting certain groups, even if that's not helping them in terms of their health conditions. Can we play Kelly's question? How does xenophobia affect how we see disease and how we treat it? You know, that's an excellent question. And I think uh, really pressing it right now because of the fact that the current outbreak, as you were talking about coronavirus, has unusually a very specific geographic epicenter, Wuhan, China. Right, right. right. And so, yeah, we've heard all sorts of people commenting, you know, on social media and whatnot about, you know, they look Asian and therefore they're being targeted because, you know, of the association right. by appearance, essentially. Right, right. Um, this goes back into the Middle Ages. In Europe, they blamed Jews for the Black Death. The name Spanish influenza stuck around. People still think it's because the, the virus came out of Spain. And it, in fact, it's much more nuanced than that. Spain was a neutral country during World War One, and its press wasn't censored. Right. So when the virus hit, Spain's press was the only press in Europe that could talk about how bad the disease was where because everyone else was and under they get censorship. labeled for doing the right thing and they get labeled for doing the right thing and well and then papers in other countries would print about what was going on in spain right. because they could get away with that and so the the notion that the virus came out of spain sort of proliferated but you know and we even see it in political rhetoric today where even the specter of disease is used yes. as uh sort of anti-immigration fodder or um you know, it, it came up, I think, in the, in the last presidential election about, you know, diseases coming across the southern border. Mexico, for those who don't know, has a higher vaccination rate than the United States does. But, uh, you know, just that idea. Right. Right. Um, it, it goes right into fear of the other. And there's no evidence, though, that xenophobia actually helps to control the spread of the disease. It really doesn't, because viruses don't discriminate on people based on their, their race or outward appearance. Zachary? 
How do we react to diseases like or outbreaks like the coronavirus or the Spanish flu uh, while also not uh, constantly being in crisis mode and acknowledging the broader uh, issues that we face, uh, like in the United States right now, addiction or diabetes or issues like that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I was chatting with one of the production staff while we were getting set up. And this year's strain of influenza actually has a higher mortality rate than the coronavirus. Um, So if you catch the plain old flu that's going around right now in um, 2019-20, you face a higher chance of dying from it than than you do. And if if you're not vaccinated, you've exposed yourself to more risk. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why people get really tense about it is, you know, viruses are scary. There's a reason why they're the villain in so many movies, you know. <laughs> viruses are prehistoric, you know, they 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 go back hundreds of million years, longer even than the democratic primary. And <laughs> good um, one. You know, and you know, they, they as as you said in your poem, you know, they were here before us, they'll be here after us, you know, and uh they're they're hard to control. You can't see them coming. So I think there's just this this fear of the hidden, and, and this goes right back into xenophobia, right? right? You are statistically more likely to be hit by a car than you are to even catch the coronavirus, let alone die from it. Um, but I think it's just that irrational fear that that is basic human nature. Keeping it in perspective is always a good and, idea. And as Zachary pointed out, there's a tendency for us to focus on that that red light warning of that issue and mm-hmm. forget about all the other issues the that other. are actually killing more people. Again, Absolutely. drug addiction, various other you things. Know, right? Heart disease is still the number one killer of people right. in America. Suicide in the United States is an enormous, Absolutely. especially among veterans, is an enormous issue. Yes, right? yes. I mean, the mental health epidemic is, is really the public health crisis in this country right now. So one of our other students, uh, Kendrick Lamont, wanted to drill down on the issue of quarantine because mm-hmm. that's a, a common reaction. It's one that's being implemented by the U.S. government as well as other governments right now. Zachary referred in his poem to the quarantining of cruise ships, for example. Uh, let's hear Kendrick Lamont's question. I was wondering if any of the quarantine strategies currently being used to combat coronavirus have been used in the past, and if so, how effective they were. Thanks. So that's a, that's another excellent question. Quarantines really only work in very specific circumstances. So, for example, the cruise ship, again, is effective because... You have an isolated population on a ship where you know that somebody had the disease um, and you're trying to prevent them from carrying it off the ship. At the same time, however, one of the members of the Japanese health service who was working the ship contracted the virus. So, you know, it's still it's still not 100 percent effective in the modern era. And, and in modern era, I would even go back to the beginning of the 20th century. The, the idea of the cordon sanitaire, which mm-hmm. is what we used to call them, the sanitary curtain or quarantine was really discontinued because it's so hard to prevent all movements. I mean, even as I I want to say even a city like Wuhan, it's 11 million people. It has an international airport with daily flights to Australia, San Francisco, New York, Europe. All it takes is one person to slip through. So, you know, the fact that the, the Chinese government has blockaded Wuhan is you know, on the one hand, they were able to control it because, again, this is very unusual that w- we were able to pinpoint the origin of the virus to that specific location. But it's still present in most sure. of the provinces in China, you know, and, and in Japan and, and, and in Japan and in the U.S. You know, now too. And in the U.S., there's a, a suspect case in San Antonio today. You can never be 100 percent certain 
all you can really do is try to slow down the bulk of the infection. But, you know, as is the case in all of those movies where the virus is the villain, it only takes one. Right. So so what works? We've talked about very effectively drawing on your research some of the, shall we say, mistakes that are repeated time and again because they're so attractive. It makes sense to uh, take out your xenophobic hate on groups and it makes sense to quarantine, but it doesn't seem to work. What works, Chris? What really works is increasing awareness of the virus and and making sure that people seek medical attention if they actually think they have it um, or or they might have contracted it. Um, You know, ultimately, what we're talking about is Mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. And um, there has been a little bit of stifling of of some of the media coverage of the coronavirus, I think, just because people don't they want don't want to incite panic. Right. Right. You know, but at the same time, if you were to put statistics out there, for example, of the fact that catching it is not a death sentence. Right. Um, if you seek medical care, you know, uh, it is possible to, you know, catch this thing and survive, then that would re- that reduces the panic level a bit. And also, you know, just reminding people to, to you know, perhaps uh, wash their hands, not cough out in public. And if you're in an area where the virus is suspected to be, you know, maybe don't go to that concert tonight. You know, there are things people can do to sort of limit their exposure to the general. Risk mitigation, exactly. You know, until a virus is developed, that's really all you can do is try to limit your own exposure to it. How do you, and I think this is a central issue for democracies in many areas, not just in public health, how do you inform people uh, without creating panic, but instead creating trust? That's also a really good question um, because, and I don't want to be critical of government public health agencies, but a lot of times the material they put out is very dry, technical, and not easily understood. Yes. So speaking in plain language, um, of course, right now what we have is a problem with misinformation out right. there, you know, rumors, conspiracy theories, etc. you know, which is completely unhelpful. In order for for the information coming out of a government to be effective, there has to be trust with with, with the government agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, the CDC has done a much better job, I think, in the last few years of of doing that. But, um, you know, it it definitely was a long road. You know, uh, it used to be... You know, if you were going on a vacation somewhere and you needed to get one of the special shots, they'd give you an information handout from the the CDC, and it was completely incomprehensible. Right, right, right. You know, it's like I actually know a couple things about public health, and I look at it and go, I don't know what this means. You know, and and so uh, I I think it's that more sort of frank talk, but also you know, keep it. I keep it real, as the kids used to say. I don't think anybody says that anymore. I'm showing my age here. <laughs> sure. And the CDC, by the way, is a Center for Disease Control based in Atlanta. It's a federally funded agency, correct? It is, it is our, our... We don't have a Department of Health in the United States. It is the equivalent of our Department and, of Health. And, and you think it does a good job with these things? I do think they do a good job. I mean, CDC is cutting edge. Um, you know, uh, they, like everyone else, you know, they, they sort of have to, you know, search in the uh, sofa for, for dimes and nickels sometimes to get their funding. Right. But, you know, CDC is is trustworthy. I, I think their public face has been a little bit, has needed a bit of a makeover, but uh, yeah. Sure, sure. And, and agencies go through these uh, Agencies cycles. go through these, right. Zachary? Um, how do we uh, handle the interaction between uh, disease and politics and prevent uh, actions in regards to diseases from becoming too political. 
oh, that's an issue of managing politics, you know, whatever the cause of the day is, uh, will somehow wind up in debate on Capitol Hill, I feel, anymore. You know, and so that, I, I think, again, is where uh, sort of frank talk and public information really comes into help, because it helps the electorate understand what is reasonable debate on policy and what is, you know, being used as a, as a political mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. point. Are, are these issues better handled at the federal or state level? Because the CDC is a federal agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your work uh, on the end of World War I, um, you saw a variety of different kinds of responses, even within Egypt itself, right? What, you know, did, does local tend to be better? Does national tend? Is How do we know if we're getting the right mix? I'm going to invoke a word that came up a lot right after 9-11 and and kind of fell by the wayside, and that is coordination. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the best response is the federal agency needs to make resources available. This, the local agencies are the best ones to employ it because they know that they're they know their constituency, they know their territory, um, and the state agency is sort of the go between, you know, to step in. Ideally, you want to be in a situation where nobody is stepping on anyone else's toes and no one is reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. and that's just a simple level of of efficient coordination. Ideally, you would then have, for example, the World Health Organization coordinating internationally. So, for example, you know, there does need to be, you know, coordination, but for example, between the United States and both Mexico and right. Canada, right. right? And, and you know, either that's direct interagency cooperation or, or, or it's, it's facilitated through the WHO. It, it, it's a really good point because uh, we often forget how important and how multilateral the international responses are. Um, I mean, you, you've had members of the CDC going over to China. We, right. might, we might have difficult relations with China when we're talking about trade or uh, weapons, but nonetheless, we want our doctors to be there, first of all, to help them so the virus doesn't spread, but also so we can understand it better right. in our own society. Right, right. right. And, and interestingly enough, when it comes to the scientific communities, they tend to be a little less territorial. Right in crisis situations like this than, than, than other organizations tend to be. So, so I guess our last set of questions uh, are always uh, about how we can do better going forward, how this historical knowledge, how this vast repository you've shared with us of, of historical background, how that can help us to do better uh, as we go forward. What, what should we be um, calling for as citizens in a, who want to live in a vibrant democracy with effective health responses, there are going to be future health crises. What should we be asking for? You know, um, we've been talking a lot about what what happens when the next major pandemic like the Spanish influenza takes place. Are we ready for it? Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced we are. Okay. Um, I, I, I think we've gotten better. But, you know, this came up again in the post 9-11 era over concerns that there might be some sort of biological or chemical sure, attack. Sure, sure. And, you know, the the need for efficiency and whatnot, you know, it's it's also now been almost 20 years since, since 9-11, you know, national security has taken a different form, you know, and it, but it doesn't have to be uh, an act of aggression. It could sure. literally just be, I think, you know, uh, for example, several of the, of the most recent outbreaks, uh, coronavirus, Ebola, the H1N1, they've come in out of areas where that are that are developing and where 
mankind is moving into territory that it we didn't used to occupy. Interesting. You know, we don't know what's in those jungles. You know, or or how we're facilitating viruses sure. coming out. You know, and or so, what climate change or, does to or change about virus. climate change. You know, we know there are viruses frozen in the tundra that you know are, are going going to thaw out. So. Um, it's just one of those things where we always need to be one step ahead. We may not be able to anticipate what the virus is going to be, but we can anticipate how we're going to respond for the next health crisis. And what should what are, we be? What what capabilities should we be cultivating? We uh, so are are we prepared for a major health crisis? Are we prepared to deploy doctors to a certain area? Are we prepared to curtail public transportation? The Chinese did it very effectively, but China's authoritarian regime. Right. You know, you can easily imagine that if if they tried to shut down, for example, DFW, Dallas Fort Worth International Airport, which is one of the busiest in the country, is, you know that the first thing that somebody would do is sue. Right. Right. You know, and so um, or or just shutting down highways, right? Or How just do you shutting stop down people highways. from driving somewhere, right? Right. Right. You know, and and again, quarantines are marginally effective, but what you what you want to do is slow down the spread of the virus until it can lead until you can develop the what you need. To, it seems to me that this is uh, this, to contain it. This brings us back to a discussion we had during the Cold War about civil defense. Correct. There it was. How do we respond to a nuclear attack? But one of your great insights, Chris, is that some of the most deadliest and threatening uh, "quote unquote" foreign actions are things that actually come around disease vectors. They're not from evil actors. They're from uh, medical and health crises. And having a civil defense capability, how do we respond? Is I think what you're talking about. Right? That is, in fact, exactly what I'm what I'm talking about is we're, we we tend to focus on the potential for a bad human actor, but throughout history, our biggest death tolls have come around as the result of viruses. Right, right. And preparing for that should probably be a priority. Yes. Zachary, do you think this is something that can interest and uh, motivate young people to, to think about and get involved with? I think so. I think one of the benefits of the coverage of viruses like uh, coronavirus and other recent viruses is that it really reminds us that even though we live in a very developed country where these kinds of health crises wet rarely uh, touch us, uh, that that we really need to be prepared and vigilant about uh, making sure that we all stay safe and healthy and that we uh, do our part to contributing to the larger health of the community. Right. And that would involve, again, building capacity, as Chris said, to sort of react to circumstances with supplies, with available doctors, infrastructure. But it also involves developing a knowledge base so you're aware, but not panicking or spreading false rumors, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember growing up uh, in New York City in the 1980s during the AIDS epidemic, early part yeah. of the AIDS epidemic, yeah. and one of the real issues then, we didn't call it fake news, but it was all the misinformation mm -hmm. about AIDS. Kids who came to school saying that their parents had told them they could get AIDS by being in the same room with someone or being in the same subway car with someone. And, and quite frankly, uh, just connecting it to everything we talked about, the xenophobia, the racism, the mistreatment that, that came out of that, that was also counterproductive for health purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. The HIV epidemic was and remains one of, of, of the sort of, I think, classic case studies in what not to do right? Uh, in terms of public response. I mean, uh, we remember 
when when the virus first originated, it actually had a different name. It was gay-related immunodeficiency grid, hmm. Hmm. you know, and so literally it was right there in the name. And so right. people literally assumed that if you weren't homosexual, you were not at risk. And it turned out, you know, actually that was the highest risk population. That's right. I, I remember hearing people say that, that it was it, your sexual preference determined whether you were at risk or not. They were saying that on TV. Mm-hmm. And I think many people um, became infected because they didn't understand that they were also at risk, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so, so I think this is this is so important. And uh, Chris, thank you for sharing your knowledge, uh, and I hope others will will uh, read your work. Yeah. And go to your website Thanks. to learn more about this. Uh, Zachary, thank you as always for sharing a thought provoking scene setting poem. And I want to thank our listeners for taking an issue that often is treated in hyperbolic and technical terms uh, and actually thinking about it historically and opening our minds to the ways in which history can help us, as Chris said so well, to at the very least avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. Thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.